O heavenly King, the comfort of the Spirit of Truth, watch over our present to fill us all things, treasure your blessings, and give of life. Come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, a good one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It looks like we've got at least three or four people who have not been here before. And I think some of you, it's your first time you were ever at an Orthodox Divine Liturgy as well. Is that right? Mm-hmm. For three of you at least, maybe? I've I don't, been a few times. You've been a few times? First time? What's, what's a, what was Wednesday? Wednesday was Vespers. Oh, okay. so that's when, yes. So, yes. So you can go Vespers and now Divine Liturgy. So this, we are in the middle of... Uh, what catechesis is, is there's basically a time in which you're inquiring into the Orthodox Church, and then at some point, uh, the best parallel that I know is kind of like dating, uh, getting engaged and getting married. Uh, there's like a flirting time, inquiry, and then there's like a dating, and then at some point you know that you're going to put a ring on it, and then that is when you are blessed to become a catechumen. Uh, catechumens are basically enrolled in the church. This is the ancient church, so they're basically learning what the Orthodox Church taught. It wasn't just learning all of the doctrines and things, but it was starting to be acclimated to the life of the church, taking on the prayers, the uh, ascetical life of the church, the fasting, uh, a time of discernment uh, and growth in Christ. So because you guys are kind of coming in the middle of the classes, which is fine, it's just there's a lot at the beginning that is front-loaded as knowing where the direction is, and that's something that we can maybe do an extra thing uh, if you're interested or we'll, we'll figure something out. Uh, today, we are we have been going through um, uh, Father Thomas Hopko's books, and we are going to, today it was, well, last week we did Holy Trinity, and today we're doing Scripture and the Old Testament. Uh, did anyone have any questions from the reading from Hopko? A lot of what Hopko does in this part is just kind of give a almost like a Wikipedia entry level of like, here's what we think about scripture, but then like the Old Testament, and he goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and kind of gives a synopsis of every book. Uh, he's going to do that for New Testament, and then he's going to hit kind of themes with salvation history. Uh, when I first wrote out the syllabus, uh, if there's who are interested in getting syllabus, I can either print one off or email it to you. Uh, there is, we were going to do Old Testament today, and then next week is going to New Testament and salvation history. I'm going to try to basically cover all of that today, because next week there ain't no way that we're going to be able to do a catechism class when we are basically going out to Roan County Park for uh, St. Anne's Day, okay? Uh, so, what, how should I go about this exactly? The extra thing, or the supplementary thing, besides reading Father Thomas Hopko, uh, is this uh, essay written by Metropolitan Christos Ware, uh, who died just a few months ago, actually, uh, called How to Read the Bible. And I would like for us to spend most of our time today going through this article about how to read the Bible, uh, because... Who comes from like kind of a low church Baptist? I call it Baptocostal. Is kind of what I call in general Baptist or Pentecostal. So East Tennessee, right? Uh, anybody come from like a Lutheran background, Anglican background, Roman Catholic background? I know Arnold is Roman Catholic background, even though you're never fully in but Baptist, right? Uh, and then nothing. Jacob, I think that's more you. I'm sorry, I don't I think I got your name. Emerson. Emerson. Are you? Did your was your background like Emerson? <laughs> more or less, friend. Really? Yeah, my parents named me after uh, Ralph, Ralph Waldo. Okay. Yeah. All right. So transcendentalism. No, not American transcendentalism either. So the way the Orthodox Church approaches the Bible, as opposed to, especially if the vast majority, and what you're probably going to encounter most in East Tennessee. Uh, or the South in general, just in evangelical circles, is a different way of approaching the Bible. It's not entirely foreign or new, but it is, its emphases are, are typically different. Uh, when I was growing up, and I, I grew up Protestant in uh, Churches of Christ, which is in 
if you know church history, it's like restoration movement, so kind of frontier 19th century American uh, stuff. There was very much, we looked at the Bible, even though they wouldn't say this, but it's kind of like a text, like a science book, handbook, where you kind of like, you have a thing and you look it up, and this is how you, we just trying to replicate the pattern in scripture, except the pattern was a lot more complicated and, and deeper than they realized what the pattern was. Uh, so in the Orthodox Church, when we are reading scripture, and this is something at the very beginning to, that I want to, I'll say advice, and if it needs to be uh, a warning about orthodoxy coming in, is it requires a very deep shift in how you presume to come to the text if you're already familiar with scripture. And that shift, it can make reading scripture uh, hard. It can also make it easier, but it depends. There's, there's kind of a frame. I remember at some point, because I was searching, I didn't really know what to do with scripture anymore because I had a certain framework in which I was working with scripture and that imploded because it didn't make sense anymore, but I didn't have anything else to replace it with yet. So I was kind of looking around and there's a lot of options that can be given to you. Uh, but in the Orthodox Church, uh, it takes time, as we've been talking about, of marinating to be able to root out some of those presuppositions. I'll give you an example. Uh, how many of you know are familiar with like the Roman road? A road through Romans. Is that like a 1980s thing more? Okay, maybe it's a, an old, like, right? Like, you're going to convict somebody of sin, so you're, there's these passages through the book of Romans. I didn't grow up like this, but Baptists typically more grew up like this. Like, you're going to save somebody, so you're going to show them how they're a sinner, how they need Jesus. You can even, like, think of the image that comes up. None of these things are bad, per se, but what it does is it takes the book of Romans and it interprets it in a very particular way uh, that are questions that like John Calvin, Martin Luther, etc. would have. I remember sitting in a coffee shop when I was an undergrad and I'd become Orthodox already. Are any of you familiar with Campus Crusade for Christ? Crew? Okay. I had a lot of friends who were in, in crew. I was always the weird Orthodox guy, okay? So they would randomly ask me questions because I almost always had a different opinion or take on the passage than they did uh, because they were basically Reformed or Baptist-like. So when they read Romans, all of their questions, they're not actually from the text. They're something that they actually bring to the text and ask of the text. And they assume that it's just what the text says, except that's not what it says. So if you read uh, a lot of, I'm, I'm using Baptist or kind of as a catch-all for low church Protestantism, okay, uh, or Reformed, they read Romans in a very particular way. If you were to sit down with St. John Chrysostom from the 4th century, who knew Greek better than any other Reformers did, and that you were to sit down and read the book of Romans with him, because we've done this as a parish, we have classes that we recorded all of these during COVID time, we have Zoom where we went through Chrysostom's homilies on Romans, what he sees and what he reads is completely different. Not completely as in like, he's talking about aliens or something, right? He, it, it, he just doesn't have the same questions. He doesn't have the same framework. So I remember sitting in that coffee shop with this crew Bible study going on behind me and somebody asked a very, I thought, enlightening question, which is like, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? And the person's response was, because it gave God the greatest glory. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, I've been reading St. Athanasius on the Incarnation. If you haven't read that, I highly suggest. If you're a reader, sit down and read St. Athanasius on the Incarnation. I can give you a copy. His answer is because God had to become man. And because, it, wasn't this, it wasn't this line of thinking from, if you're familiar with John Piper, have anybody? All right. Yes. All right. I, I see a lot of light bulbs. <laughs> Somebody's Baptist, really Baptist right there. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, it was a completely set of qu different questions. And the kid is just like, I don't understand why that is the answer. As opposed to like, for Athanasius, Christ had to die crucified in the air because the demons are in the air and his arms are stretched out to love the entirety of creation. He had a completely different view of how to read those things. That was, and to me, I'm just sitting there saying I couldn't take it anymore because it's, it's like, if you're going to ask, how do we understand scripture? And you go back to the 16th century, and you don't go any further, there's like 1,500 years there of church life and 
You just stop there? Why? Why not go back to the 4th century? Why not look at the 8th century? Why not look at the 12th century? And so I, at some point, I just like, sorry, they, they knew who I was, but I was like, I, I have to interrupt. Like, read Athanasius on the Incarnation. Calvin quotes him a bunch, but like, read something different because you're going to come away with a different set of questions, a different interpretation. Um, in many ways, what I am doing here is actually uh, hitting on what Metropolitan Ecclesiastes where it talks about in reading scripture ecclesially. Let's go ahead and just switch, go over to there. So that's two. Now, when we read and interpret scripture, we read and interpret scripture within the church. So I know this might be annoying. I'm just going to read it out loud, okay? Is that all right? Because I think I just sprung this on you. It's in the ca it's in the syllabus, but I don't know if it, has anybody read this before. All right, we're just going to read it out loud. In the second place, is the bottom of page two. In the second place, we should receive and interpret scripture through the church and in the church. Our approach to the Bible is not only obedient but ecclesial. It is the church that tells us what is scripture. A book is not part of scripture because of any particular theory about its dating and authorship. Even if it could be proved, for example, that the fourth gospel is not actually written by John, the beloved disciple of Christ, this would not alter the fact that we Orthodox accept the fourth gospel as Holy Scripture. Why? Because the gospel of John is accepted by the church and in the church. If you're familiar with academic study about scripture, this is what funds so many dissertations in publishing a book, is all of these questions. And if you go to Bible studies in most a lot of churches, it is a lot of like, okay, the Gospel of Matthew. There's like 15 views of why the Gospel of Matthew is written, and it's like, we think it's dated in like uh, the 60s. And if it's dated in the 60s, have you ever heard about this? Maybe the Book of Revelation, they do this too. They really want to know what, what time period the Book of Revelation is, because that affects how they interpret Revelation. And all of this ink gets built. Is anyone familiar with Bart Ehrman? He was very popular... He was really popular in the like, late 90s. Uh, he'd been on the Colbert Show, I think, multiple times he came on the Colbert Show. Am I dating myself here for some of the... Because uh, <laughs> I'm already feeling old and saying the Colbert Show, because it hasn't been on the air for a while now, has it? Does everybody know what the Colbert Show is? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> no? That's, there's, there's a reason for that. <laughs> After 30, it's all. Yeah. <laughs> so, Bart Ehrman was an evangelical who uh, his probably most famous book is called Misquoting Jesus, where he spends a whole lot of time in the manuscripts and like, look, the manuscripts are a little bit different because in certain evangelical circles, it's everything is about the original manuscript. And that's where the authority of scripture lies is the original manuscript, because that's kind of what Metropolitan Ecclesiastes here is talking about, is this obsession. How do we get to, how do we have authority? It's because in the original manuscript that came from, you know, do you know how many original manuscripts of the Bible that we have? We don't have any original manuscripts. Do we have more manuscript evidence of scriptures than like basically anything else from antiquity? Yes, right? Do we have the same idea of the original authentic manuscript in the way that certain evangelicals, and it's not all evangelicals have, the Orthodox Church doesn't have this idea. There's all sorts, if you go in the Fathers, they have different ideas like who wrote the book of Hebrews? There's some who think it was Paul. There's some who think it was, uh, uh, oh, what, what is the name? Burnaby. I'm, who? Uh, Burnaby. Barnabas. Barnabas. I think that Barnabas is one, and I, um, Ananias, I think. I'm forgetting all the names. Doesn't matter. Well, and that's the point, right? It doesn't really matter, because in the church, we read. What is canonical? When you think of canonical scripture, what do you think of? You don't know? Good answer, Emerson. Emerson would also say he doesn't know. Okay. All right, so the canonical set of scripture, if you were to ask most Protestants, they will put out before you, especially certain Protestants, like the King James in the original, because that's God's book, right? I remember in undergrad we had certain, they would ask the professor, a New Testament professor, like, which Bible do you use? And like, do you use the King James? Because my pastor says it has to be King James as if the King James Version, which is a translation, it, it's just a funny, weird world out there. But uh, the, the Orthodox Church has always accepted and sees as canon more books than what the Protestant Church has. Uh, that's because 
when did the canon of scripture actually come about? Well, there was like a council that agreed on certain things, and then other things. So Revelation, I think, was the last one to be added, and there was a lot of debate over whether or not. Right, so you're saying, I'll expand a little bit, it's complicated, right? There are some who will say there's a council that came together, Athanasius, because there's a letter from Athanasius that has like a list of scripture. If you look at early uses of the New Testament, uh, have, has anyone ever read First Clement or Second Clement? Uh, how about uh, the, the letters to Ignatius, the Shepherd of Hamas, like these kind of books, the Apostolic Fathers, as if you're if you're going to go buy it off Amazon right now. Uh, these are like second century. First, second century depends on who you ask. I mean, the Didache is also in there. These are all works that are contemporaneous or like a generation after the apostles. And in early lists of scripture, some of them were in those lists of scripture. And some of the ones that you think that are like, this is the New Testament, they weren't in there. So did they have Christ? Were they the church? Yes, they were. Because the canon of scripture was not actually like, a published book because guess what they didn't have they had scrolls right they didn't have uh, a new King James version small print Bible or Gideon's Bible that they got right and they have it in their front pocket which is great practice you should do it you should carry around scripture with you and read it but the, the, the world is a completely different world right they went to church to hear scripture read aloud and what was read aloud in church was what is the canonical scripture this is what is accepted right Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and a letter to the Romans. I'm, I'm going to start doing my kid stuff that I memorized as a kid, right? First and second Philippians, uh, first and second Corinthians, Titus and Philippians. Does anyone else? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, the the Orthodox Church, the authority that resides in the church, because the church is before Scripture. I don't mean that church is primary to Scripture. Scripture is primary to us. But scripture rightly understood within the church, right? You, you have to have the right context, the right uh, reading of scripture that is guided. This is where we get into this next uh, paragraph. It is the church that tells us what is scripture, and it is also the church that tells us how scripture is to be understood. Coming upon the Ethiopian as he read the Old Testament in his chariot, Philip the Apostle asked him, Understandest thou what thou readest? Somebody's using King James here. Okay. And the Ethiopian answered, How can I, unless some man should guide me? This is from Acts 8. We are all in the position of the Ethiopian. The words of Scripture are not always self-explanatory. God speaks directly to the heart of each one of us as we read our Bible. There's no, in, for Metropolitan Ecclesiastes and the Orthodox Church, there's no sense that you don't, have your time with scripture and reading scripture. It doesn't get chucked out the window and you only just listen to scripture in church. In some ways, like, thank God that we can all read scripture at home. St. John Chrysostom uh, in the 4th century encouraged uh, every family to save up their what say, denarii, shekels, whatever mint that they had at the time and they were to employ because guess what? It costs a lot of money to get somebody to handwrite a Bible right? or not, they didn't handwrite Bibles they hand wrote like the gospel <laughs> according to Matthew so you spend like a year's worth of time because to have somebody sit down and handwrite the gospel of Matthew that might cost you a year's worth of wages right because that's what part of the reason you went to church is because for most people that's where you heard scripture read out loud so St. John Chrysostom encouraged anybody who can actually afford to you should get your own copy of scripture so that you can read it and encourages reading it at home discussing it in your families. So there's no sense in the Orthodox Church that there's not private reading of Scripture. There's a lot of assumption that you actually are reading Scripture. Um, scripture reading is a personal dialogue between each one of us in Christ, but we also need guidance, and our guide is the Church. We make full use of our own personal understanding assisted by the Spirit. We make full use of the findings of modern biblical research. But always we submit private opinion whether our own or that of the scholars, to the total experience of the church throughout the ages. If you're familiar with G.K. Chesterton, he was a Roman Catholic, uh, I'll just say journalist, for lack of a better word, author. Uh, one of the things he talks about uh, in thinking about tradition is that a, a real 
democracy of the dead, that we allow those who have gone on before us to have an actual say about what, that things aren't just constantly in flux and turmoil with whatever is happening now, but because we have anchored, because as I've just been mentioning this morning, right, like St. John Chrysostom, St. Athanasius of Alexandria, I can go through the list of the fathers and mothers of the church that we say as put before us as authoritative and guides for our life. That's why this Sunday is a commemoration of the fathers of the first six ecumenical councils. And in the hymnody, it talks about them being lights upon the earth, that they actually help guide us. Because we all need boundaries. We need, uh, this. I'm going to use G.K. Chesterton again. G.K. Chesterton talks about tradition as being kind of like fences which allow for the safety, like with kids, like right out here, we don't have fences out here. So all the, the parents lose their minds because the kids lose their minds because there's not boundaries. Though they know there's something about knowing there's safety because there's, these are the boundaries. Kids need boundaries, right? If you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> you have to say no. <laughs> and they actually like that because it, 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 they know what reality is then, right? They feel safe in that. We have that same, there are boundaries uh, put for us um, that doesn't mean the squashing of individual interaction with scripture. In fact, it allows the flourishing of the interaction with scripture. What is, I mean, who all has been to a Bible study before, right? Most people, isn't most Bible studies, I don't know about your experience, is like you read a few verses and everybody goes, what's your opinion about it? Or how do you feel about this passage? And then you hear like 15 completely I would say heterodox in the sense of not like just orthodox, but just like, whew, whew. It's like, what? <laughs> what, do, what do, so Bible study in orthodox church is always going to be guided by obedience. That's what the first point is to scripture, uh, to a ecclesial reading that we are being guided in how we read uh, by those who actually are rooted in the tradition and our representation of what the church has thought for the past 2,000 years. Okay. Does anyone have, sorry, I'm talking a mile a minute because there's a lot of stuff to go over. So I'll pause right here. Does anyone have any questions? Because I just poured out a lot of stuff there. Nothing. Everything's crystal clear. Yes, Emerson. Is there some sort of footnote system for what we've been talking about? Do you mean like Midrash? Like or like afterwards, if I will to want to reference some of the things you were talking about that come to you. Yeah, listen to the podcast. <laughs> I can give you a lot, bunch of books. I'm kind of this kind of what catechism is me just kind of basically trying to synthesize as much as possible and be able to to give it outside of like a decade's worth of study. Sure. The study Bible. The Orthodox study Bible can be helpful. I say, I'll, I'll emphasize can be helpful. It's I, I'm. All right, how do I say this? I'm also being recorded. Where? The, <laughs> where? The Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm just kidding. Yes. No, I'm just... Oh. <laughs> if you have questions, if you're ever reading the Orthodox Study Bible, please, you can come and talk to me. There's just times where... This is always the challenge when you try to break things down verse by verse and, like, try to give when you're fitting it into, like, an, a study Bible format where you're like, what's an enlightening thing that I can say in two sentences about this text? Usually you're not going to be able to say that much that's really that enlightening or that good, in my opinion. Because you're just going to repeat what it says? Or you need what you really need is like a, 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 an essay to describe Paul's dealing with an Ephesus, this pagan cult around the goddess, blah, 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 and this is why he uses these metaphors and Right, like you, 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 what you really need is like com bigger commentaries, and so Orthodox study Bibles try to like shortcut you. So no offense, I think they're great. It's just it can also be like, okay, I already know that, or cool. Well, coming from a place of knowing very little about the canon, I, I think maybe something. I have some books that ha that talk about the formation of the canon and where what what the Orthodox think about it, so I can recommend them too. Podcast called Search the Scriptures by. Presbyterian Dr. Jimmy Constantino on Ancient Faith Radio, and the first five episodes, so five hours, of just how the Bible came to be. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's fantastic, because, you know, she taught at seminary, and she was a seminary professor, yeah, she, and a canon lawyer, so that's a good listening resource if that's your, like, mode of learning also. 
I can also give you books. Yeah, whatever works. Podcasts are great. Some people learn great that way. Some people, they're just mowing the lawn and listening to something. Yep. Uh, when I remember at the service, at some point you guys had like a golden book. Is that the Bible? Like the Orthodox Bible? Is that just I love these questions. If anybody has questions like that, do not just ask. That is the, those are the four Gospels. Oh, so that's just the four Gospels? So our services are very much like temple service. Right, with Christ having completed and fulfilled everything. So what sits on the altar, there is basically a jar of manna, which is the Eucharist. There is, as in pre-sanctified, that is in the, the tabernacle on the altar. There is a cross, which is like the budding rod of Aaron. Then there is the commandments that sit on the, the, the altar as well. So those are the four Gospels. They are broken down when you open them up into the pericopes, which pericope is just a, a, a section of scripture that is assigned to the various we have, you can do, there for every day of the year there's a set pericope to be read uh, for every service and we have special services like during Holy Week on Holy Thursday night where we read all of the passion parts from the four gospels it hasn't broken down to where we can read all of those, so that is what is, is in the gospel book, the gold book that you saw I have a question. Um, it's also why we kiss it. A oh. lot. Yeah. I have lots of questions about the ritual. That's fine. Your Orthodox Church has a, a daily reading plan, right? Yep. If one reads every single reading for every single day for the whole year, is it the whole Bible or not? No. Okay. So the lectionary that we have is always ecclesially considered is that what you see on the counter so it'd be what I would look to if I was going to do liturgy every single day then that's what I would be reading the gospel and the epistle unless it's a particular feast day and then it gets changed around so right now we're in the gospel of Matthew before we're in the gospel of John right there it, it kind of it moves along at some point we'll make a jump into the gospel of Luke uh, so the Orthodox Church the lectionary for example as you, you talked about the book of Revelation being something how, mi how much consternation? Go away, son. <laughs> My keys are in the place they're always at. I can't read lips. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's eight. Uh, He's eight. Sorry, my brain. I got Revelation. Yeah, the book of Revelation. Who has had, when you were growing up, if you, or even if you didn't, like the book of Revelation is just one of those books, right? Like, Everybody's got weird ideas about the book of Revelation. For the Orthodox Church, uh, this is part of the reason why it was not, it's never appointed to be read out loud in, in the services. Uh, in fact, we read out loud books that aren't in the Protestant Bible from the Old Testament wisdom literature books uh, on Vespers uh, more than, so we'll read those more than the book of Revelation. That doesn't mean that we don't consider it can canon. In fact, uh, President Terra. Eugene, uh, I want to say Evgenia instead of Eugene, Eugenia, but uh, she has uh, her dissertation is on Andrew of, say Andrew of Crete's commentary on the book of Revelation. So it is something that was commented on. When you are looking at and thinking about heavenly worship and, and what happens in Revelation, that's what we are doing. The elders are falling down before the throne of Christ. There is incense going. You have the prayers of the saints. You have all of the, those who are triumphant and militant of the church, those who have gone on before, the martyrs underneath the altar who are crying out, that we do the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, the Orthodox Church, is considered, it's kind of a good test for what we're reading in this article, is we find within it not uh, when is Russia going to take over Iran and our those beasts like tanks or are they nuclear bombs or whatever right like we're this obsession with literal interpretation which that's not a literal interpretation if you're saying that that beast equals tanks that that, liter that literally doesn't <laughs> that would be beasts if you're being literal then there's going to be a creature that's going to come out of the water right like <laughs> that's what literal means so orthodox church is very comfortable with metaphor with symbol that is these things are spiritual realities that doesn't mean that there's not demons there's not angels there's not creatures and craziness in the world because there's craziness in the world 
but they will see those things as pro prophetic literature because the book of Revelation is based off of the images from the Old Testament. So we're not looking for the book, this goes back to, it's not a like guideline to the end times where we know that now because Israel is now uh, in lockstep with the United States and therefore going to take down Iran and Russia. I'm going back to the 80s here now, right? Although, God knows. Okay, so... <laughs> We look at it as spiritual realities. In fact, if you go back to, I need to label these better on the podcast, but all of my homilies are uploaded. And I did a series where I was bringing up uh, Jesus from the very beginning of the book of Revelation with the sword coming out of his mouth and bringing in Old Testament, like the Old Testament resonances or where those things are coming from as the word that he gave to the churches. So it is, when we read scripture, the primary focus is where do we fit in all of this, right? So this is why the mind of the church uh, is something that we learn through the liturgical life, through uh, the reading of the tradition, and our own reading of scripture, our own spiritual struggle. Okay, so the book of Revelation, uh, we, we're, there's always antichrist. We're not waiting for just the antichrist. What is the antichrist? Those who do not confess that Christ came in the flesh. That's what John tells us in is it first, first John or third John. I can't remember off the top of my head. One of the Johannine epistles. Um, so when we come to scripture, the main focus that we are finding is where is Jesus and where am I? I mean, I don't know if you've heard enough of my sermons or if you go back, that is almost always what I am doing when I am preaching. Who is Jesus? What are the little details in the scripture? I'm kind of modeling Lectio Divina. Do you all know what Lectio Divina is? It's basically divine reading is in Latin, where you slowly read a text, and then you contemplate and pray over that, and kind of chew on it. And then you can, for example, in today's the gospel uh, with the paralytic and the friends, like, am I a friend? Am I somebody who's going to bring somebody to Christ? Who needs it? Am I going to intercede in prayer for them? Who do I need to intercede and pray for right now? Or in my heart, are there things there that I am denying what Christ can do? Right? Like you, you find yourself in there and you apply that to yourself. So that is what his next point that he's talking about is finding Christ everywhere. In the Old Testament scriptures, when we're reading about Moses, when he and we hear this in the liturgy because the liturgy helps us. If you come to the feasts, especially Marian feasts, we'll be having, uh, in August, we'll start an, the Dormition Fast, and we have the Feast of the Transfiguration, and we have the, uh, on August 6th, and we have the Feast of the Dormition, and we have Old Testament readings, and you're wondering how, why do they pray to Mary so much, and what is going on, because we find the Theotokos throughout the Old Testament as well. That is something that I'll talk about in another class, I don't want to get too sidelined here, but you will see how we read the Old Testament scripture and see everything that is in the life of the church there, right? So when we get to the exaltation, the feast of the exaltation of the cross in September, one of the hymn, one of the lines of the hymn to your hymns is about Moses when they're fighting, I forget which, one of the bad folks who are occupying the territory that was supposed to be given to them. What happens? I remember that he, you know, basically prays for them, but his hands are held in a cross, Right? So that whole feast are these constant going back to the Old Testament and seeing the cross and Moses standing and praying uh, in uh, all of these, uh, th uh, the way that uh, uh, Jacob blesses uh, his son, he does it in the shape of a cross. It, it just all of the feast is constantly finding in the Old Testament the prefiguration of the cross. Not just Isaiah 53 with like the suffering servant, right? It is... The scripture, the way that we read things, we see Jesus, the Theotokos, the church, and us through all the Old Testament. So, Father, yeah. if I can finish that something up. I, I think this is to Sebastian's point regarding uh, uh, like a reading plan for reading the scripture. Um, one thing I'd really recommend is on the OCA.org website, uh, there's a link for the daily readings for that day. Okay, and, and, uh, and if you open that up, well, it also has a really good prayer to pray before you read the scripture. So you pray that prayer, you read the scripture reading for that day, and then if you're still time to have time that morning, you're sitting at breakfast or your coffee, click on the feast 
in the saints for the for that day, and it'll give you the lives of the saints. Um, and, and it can be a chore to get through all of them, and then in one morning while you're at breakfast. But if you have time, you can you can read the scripture, and and you can you can read about the lives of the saints that very day. And it's a it's a it's a good way to read scripture and and learn about the life of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what Father is saying about how this feast and we're going to read all of this, it's actually what Jesus did for two of the disciples when he says, beginning with Moses, he went through the whole thing, right? right? And that was the law, of the Psalms, and the prophets. It was the scriptures, and so Jesus is right there. Jesus begins. This is how we're going to do it. Is that we are going to see him. And he said everything concerning himself, which must have been an awful long talk. That's all I can think. But, you know, they were walking for a long time. But So that's how the church continues to do exactly what Jesus taught us to do when he was on that road. So, yes. Uh, what is Dormition? And when you say fast, is that like the traditional conception of a fast? We don't eat, maybe drink water or something like that? <laughs> all right. So the Dormition of the Theotokos is the falling asleep or the death of the Theotokos, the funeral of the Theotokos. So uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, they would call that the Feast of the Assumption. We call it the Dormition, where we believe that she died and then she was taken up to heaven by her son. So if we see the icon of the Dormition, uh, you can see, uh, I'll give you an example. Here's the Old Testament, right? The story that's around this is when she, they were carrying her body through the streets there was an unbelieving Jew that went up to like mess with her body to like push her over and an angel appeared and cut off his hand from messing with the Theotokos. Now, if you know scripture, that sounds one that's like, okay, angel, serious, I got my hand cut off. But what does that remind you of if you know Old Testament scripture? Lord's death. What does Uzzah do? He Besides have a pretty awesome name. <laughs> Uzzah. The Ark of the Covenant is falling, and he tries to, in a good intention, it, right. grab it, but he, he gets burned or something. He, he dies. dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 He dies. Yeah, just you know the kid version. <laughs> <laughs> he has a boo-boo. <laughs> so, what is going on? Why, so, the way that the church sees the mother of God, because she's the mother of God, right? She can't contain within herself God. So who is she? She's the Ark of the Covenant. She's the ladder that for, that Jacob saw, right? The, the, this is the way the church. So actually, let's read uh, the bottom of three. As an example of what it means to interpret Scripture in a liturgical way, guided by the use made of it at church feasts, let us look at the Old Testament lessons appointed for Vespers on the Feast of the Annunciation. So this is the Annunciation, but you'll see the point of what I'm making here. There are three in number. From Genesis, Jacob's dream of a ladder set up from earth to heaven. From Ezekiel, the prophet's vision of the, of the Jerusalem sanctuary with the closed gate through which one, none but the prince may pass. And then Proverbs, one of the great Sophianic or wisdom passages in the Old Testament, beginning, wisdom has built her house. These texts in the Old Testament, then, as their selection for the Feast of the Virgin Mary indicates are all to be understood as prophecies concerning the incarnation from the virgin. Mary is Jacob's ladder, supplying the flesh that God incarnate takes upon entering our human world. Mary is the closed gate, who alone among women bore a child while still remaining inviolate, a virgin. Right? Mary provides the house which Christ, the wisdom of God, takes as his dwelling. Exploring in this manner the choice of lessons for the various feasts, we discover layers of biblical interpretation that are by no means obvious on a first reading. A lot of, when you go to a lot of Bible studies, you look at commentaries and they read these passages, they do not interpret these things about Jesus or Mary. What they see is, in the Old Testament world, the in the Ugaritic, blah, 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 like all of this stuff, They and so it's like, well, God speaks to prophets. If you read this, it's really boring. <laughs> And it has really, you always kind of walk away going, like, what does this have to do with me? That's great for the prophets in the Old Testament or like Israel in the fourth century BC, but what about now, right? So, the way the Orthodox Church it, it contemporizes or makes all of Scripture alive and be pregnant with meaning beyond the actual obvious literal interpretation, right? So, it sees the Theotokos as the latter. 
The church sees the burning bush in the Old Testament where Moses encounters God, that she is the bush that is has the flame, but she's remains unburnt, right? She had divinity within her, so that is one of the images. We have all sorts of metaphors for the mother of God that are all derivative of the Old Testament, where she is present or example of how God himself makes himself available to us in the incarnation. Yes, Sebastian? There is a, a very beautiful connection also because the day of the, uh, when the angel appears to Mary to announce to her, you will conceive, there is a Greek word that makes you think of, like even Genesis 1, the, the primordial water. Yeah. Like she's the earth ready to, to receive the logos or something. The whole encounter in Luke of the angel with Mary and then Mary going to uh, Elizabeth, it all is a recapitulation of David and the Ark of the Covenant and his relationship and dancing before, like how John dances in the womb of Elizabeth. It's David dancing before the Ark. You, there, and, there, and there's many uh, word choice that you know that Luke is actually... Uh, drawing upon that encounter in scripture. One of the great things about scripture that it, it is an endless, bottomless pit is not the right word. What do you Well, that intertextuality, the, the New Testament and the Old Testament are so tightly woven. If you don't know Old Testament very well, you're not actually going to be un understand the New Testament that well. You might be able to get like, Jesus is God. Awesome. That is what you need to know. But there is so much more going on. And so many folks, when they encounter orthodoxy, especially if they were raised in a particular kind of Protestant background or presuming that, they're, they're like, well, how do you give so much like reverence to the mother of God? I'm like, well, let's read the Old Testament. The king's mother is actually given a whole lot of reverence. And she pops up multiple times in the history. But if you're reading it, from, again, going back to those presuppositions, you don't see any of that stuff because you have your chosen verses or paths to the scripture, so you can't see the rest of it. One of the things that I felt like what happened to me in being Orthodox, and it takes a few years of marinating, is that scripture just opened up in completely different ways than what I had been grown up with, more holistically. Like, um, it's more than I can do in an hour to try and, and flesh all of that out, but... Uh, let's go to the next paragraph uh, that I was reading there on four and another example of liturgical interpretation of scripture take as another example Vespers on Holy Saturday the first part of the ancient Paschal Vigil here we have no less than 15 Old Testament lessons this is Holy Saturday morning this sequence of lessons sets before us the whole scheme of sacred history while at the same time underlining the deeper meaning of Christ's resurrection the first among the lessons read is from Genesis 1, 1 through 13, the account of creation. Christ's resurrection is a new creation. The fourth lesson is the entire book of Jonah. We read the entire book of Jonah on Holy Saturday morning, besides all the other readings. With the prophets three days in the belly of the whale, foreshadowing Christ's resurrection after three days in the tomb. Jesus himself makes reference to the sign of Jonas, right? The sixth lesson recounts the crossing of the Red Sea by the Israelites, which anticipates the new Passover of Pascha, whereby Christ passes over from death to life. And you see all the scriptural. This is, Orthodox Church isn't just making these things up. They're already embedded in the New Testament. In the Gospels, they're embedded, and then Paul specifically draws the, these things out. Like, who was the rock in the wilderness to Israel? Paul says, it was Jesus. Right? The water, instead of when Moses hit, instead of spoke to the rock. Emerson, I know, I, I hope I'm not just like, Woo! it's okay. You, this is the marination. It helped, like, it's like riding a bike. You just have to do it when you're a kid. You can kind of like think about it a whole bunch, but it's better to just try and fall down and scrape your knees. It's okay. If there is a question you have, just ask. It's okay. The final lesson is the story of the three holy children in the fiery furnace from the book of Daniel. Once more, a type or prophecy of Christ rising from the tomb. Christ is present. He's the fourth. He's the angelic presence in the burning uh, fire with the three holy youth. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you know veggie tales, you at least know that. <laughs> they do do Shadrach, Meshach, yes, and Abednego, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Because the Greek, it's a, it's a completely different Azariah, set of names. Azariah, Mishael, and something. Um, so you can see how... Uh, let's just keep reading. Such is the effect of reading Scripture ecclesially in the church and with the church, studying the Old Testament in this liturgical way and using the fathers to help us. Everywhere we uncover signposts pointing forward to the mystery of Christ and of his mother. Re reading the Old Testament in the light of the new and the new in the light of the old, as the church's calendar encourages us to do. We discover the unity of Holy Scripture. One of the best ways of identifying correspondences between the Old and New Testaments is to use a good biblical concordance. This can often tell us more about the meaning of Scripture than any commentary. All right. Um, any questions? I don't want to... Oh, I thought I heard it. Yeah. Sorry. The biblical, the biblical concordance is like the book that shows... Like the the theme of this verse appears here. Yeah, concordance would have like this word shows up in all these other places, which is actually very fruitful. I remember when I was in high school and I did a lot of Bible study because I started like preaching when I was like sixteen. This is a different world that I grew up in. Okay, uh, in the Orthodox Church, at least canonically, you're not supposed to be ordained till you're the age of thirty. Can you wa imagine why they went to wait till the age of thirty? So you need to have a little bit of maturity about yourself, hopefully. You might need to bump it up a little bit these days. But uh, 30, right, is like when ordination is supposed to happen. So th there is a sense of, um, sorry, I know I just lost, sorry, too many things. Sunday morning is just too many threads going on. What did you ask originally? Concordance. <laughs> Concordance. Thank you. My goodness. When I was in high school, re just like slowly working like through Romans or First Peter, and starting to see like Ephesians and Colossians and how all these themes and all like I would use the concordance in the middle of my Bible to just be like try to go over and see like what is Paul saying over here? How is this similar? And that is very helpful for scripture study in general, right? Uh, if you are new to Christianity, I don't suggest starting with the book of Romans. I suggest sitting down and reading the Gospel of Matthew. Just start at the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, you can also read Genesis, like Genesis and Matthew. That's where I would suggest starting from. Uh, Genesis will, ha will provide so many questions, and that's great. Just keep moving. Don't get stuck and then try to Google around. Don't be worried when Sephora throws the foreskin down at Moses and it's like, you're a bloody man. Just keep reading. It, it'll, uh, that is, yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, the, I, I don't want to read this whole part about Christ, the heart of the Bible. I think we've been talking about the whole time. Like Christ is the heart of the Bible. God, Jesus Christ, the Logos, the word of God, is in fleshed Torah, Right? He is the word of God come to be a, one of us, right? So he fulfills and is everything that had already been revealed to Israel, okay? He's the one on the mountain who's giving the revelation to Moses. He is the one in the, the burning furnace. He is, it is he who is present, right? He's not absent through the Old Testament. Uh, God the Father is never without his word and he is always his Holy Spirit. And you can find the word of God and the spirit of God operative throughout the Old Testament, especially if you're reading the Psalms. So I want to end with this last portion. The Bible is personal. In the words of an early ascetic writer in the Christian East, St. Mark, the monk says, he who is humble in his thoughts and engaged in spiritual work when he reads the Holy Scriptures, will apply everything to himself and not to his neighbor. As Orthodox Christians, we are to look everywhere in Scripture for a personal application. We are to ask not just what does it mean, but what does it mean to me. Scripture is a personal dialogue between the Savior and myself, Christ speaking to me and me answering. This is the fourth criterion in our Bible reading. I am to see all the stories in Scripture as part of my personal story. Who is Adam? The name Adam means man, human. So the Genesis account of Adam's fall is also a story about me. I am Adam. It is to me that God speaks when he says to Adam, Where art thou? Where is God, we often ask. But the real question is what God asks to Adam and each of us. Where are you? When in the story of Cain and Abel, we read God's words to Cain. 
Where is Abel thy brother? These words too are addressed to each of us. Who is Cain? It is myself. And God asked the Cain in each of us, Where is your brother? The way to God lies through the love of other people. And there is no other way. It's like my sermon was somehow... Okay. <laughs> Disowning my brother, I replace the image of God with the mark of Cain and deny my own vital humanity. In reading scripture, we may take three steps. First, we, what we have in scripture is sacred history. The history of the world from the creation. The history of the chosen people. The history of God incarnate in Palestine. And the mighty works after Pentecost. The Christianity that we find in the Bible is not an ideology, not a philosophical theory, but a historical faith. Then we are to take a second step. The history presented in the Bible is a personal history. We see God intervening at specific times and specific places as he enters into dialogue with individual persons. He addresses each one by name. We see set before us the specific calls issued by God to Abraham, Moses, David, Rebekah, Ruth, Isaiah, the prophets, and then to Mary and the apostles. We see the selectivity of the divine action in history, not as a scandal, but as a blessing. God's love is universal in scope, but he chooses to become incarnate in a particular corner of the earth at a particular time and from a particular mother. We are in this manner to savor all the uniqueness of God's action as recorded in scripture. The person who loves the Bible loves details of dating and geography. Orthodoxy has an intense devotion to the Holy Land, to the exact places where Christ lived and taught, died and rose again. An excellent way, etc., etc. He talks about go take a trip to Israel. Okay, let's go to the next paragraph. Then we are to take a third step, reliving biblical history in all its particularity. We are to apply it directly to ourselves. We are to save to ourselves. All these places and events are not just far away and long ago, but are also part of my personal encounter with Christ. The stories include me. Betrayal, for example, is a part of the personal story of everyone. Have we not all been betrayed? Uh, have we not all betrayed others at some time in our life? And have we not all known what it is to be betrayed? And does not the memory of those moments leave continuing scars in our psyche? Reading then the account of St. Peter's betrayal of Christ and of his restoration after the resurrection, we can see ourselves as actors in the story, imagining what both Peter and Jesus must have experienced at the moment. Immediately after the betrayal, we enter into their feelings and make them our own. I am Peter. In this situation, can I also be Christ? Reflecting likewise on process of reconciliation, seeing how the risen Christ, the love utterly devoid of sentimentality, restored the fallen Peter to fellowship, seeing how Peter on his side had the courage to accept this restoration. We ask ourselves, how Christ-like am I to those who have betrayed me? And after my own acts of betrayal, am I able to accept the forgiveness of others? Am I able to forgive myself? Or am I timid, mean, holding back myself, never ready to give myself fully to anything either good or bad? As the Desert Fathers say, better someone who has sinned, if he knows he has sinned and repents, than a person who has not sinned and thinks of himself as righteous. Have I gained the bold, boldness of St. Mary Magdalene, her constancy and her loyalty, when she went out to anoint the body of Christ in the tomb? Do I hear the risen Savior call me by name as he called her, and do I respond, Rabboni, or teacher, with her simplicity and completeness? Reading scripture in this way, in obedience as a member of the church, finding Christ everywhere, seeing everything as a part of my own personal story, we shall sense something of the variety and depth to be found in the Bible. Yet always we shall feel that in our biblical exploration we are only at the very beginning. We are like someone launching out in a tiny boat across a limitless ocean. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I really like the quote he brings from the Desert Fathers. This is part of what the tradition gives. It's like, let's take this complicated theological point and let's boil it down. So it's better, and this might be even counterintuitive to yourself, like it is better for one who sins and knows he's sinned and repents than one who has never sinned and thinks of himself as righteous. For the Orthodox Church, the way of repentance itself is always the path to holiness. Uh, you are always already, let's just be honest here, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? It's just the way it is. It's the first step on the Romans road. <laughs> okay, to bring it back all the way to there. Okay, so that reality is not something that we try to hide from and run from. It is the way that we have to except we have sinned so that we can repent because if you can't accept that you've sinned you can't repent and you're deluded 
right? You think you're righteous. Good luck with that. It's not how it works. So when we read scripture, I especially like how he started with St. Mark. We don't read scripture in order to understand just like knowledge that we've banked away that like now we know the dating of the Gospel of John and who the three theories are. But it is something that we have encountered Christ in the reading of scripture, right? And it's not something that we're reading it for ammo or ideological backup for whatever it is that we think needs to happen politically, socially, even in our own family, right? Because you can't control your spouse. You can't control your kids. The only thing you can really account for and repent for is you. You can pray for them. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But you can't control them. And good luck if you try to control them because you're just going to blow everything up, right? Uh, what you really need to do, and this is kind of one of those primary things about the spirituality of the Orthodox Church, is we encounter Christ and we repent. That is what shapes how we encounter Scripture. Any parting questions or last questions? I highly suggest, well, it's not suggest, if you're a catechumen already, uh, you need to read these sections uh, from Hopco online, or we have some more in person. Uh, I always, in reading even these, even though, you know, like, I literally spent many years of my life preparing for all of this, like, I know a lot of these things, but it is always good to do a refresher right, to go through and learn, because I want to bet that there's going to be aspects that you didn't realize before, or now, like a lot of things, you learn things, you kind of don't realize what you've assembled, like the, the, the background or the framework, and before you could have never seen it, but now, because you've experienced Orthodox worship, you've learned a little bit more about the Trinity, you are like praying to the Mother of God, Scripture is going to look to, like the things are going to come at you that you've never seen before. Somebody had a question or... Yeah, Sebastian. Would you recommend the Bible Project's book-by-book summaries? I don't know because I haven't seen it, and and I don't... It all depends. There's also my... (laughs) I'm always hesitant about almost everything (laughs) because it really depends on who I'm talking to, what I think is the best thing for them. Because some folks, no offense to Emerson... If you're coming from, like, I'm just getting acquainted with Christianity, it's going to be very different from somebody who grew up in the church who, like, all of these references that we've been making, you're like, yeah, I know about that. I remember reading that in fifth grade or whatever, right? Like, versus I think I recall something like that from a reference in a movie I saw once, right? Like, Moses, like, Charleston Heston is the first thing that comes out, right? Uh, And that would probably be if you're into old movies, right? So, like, it really depends. Would you recommend it? I would. Yeah? I would. (laughs) So uh, what I'll always say, because I am somebody, as Metropolitan Inclusive Square says, part of the challenge of orthodoxy in this country, and it's less and less a problem or a challenge, is the reality that a lot of the original, like, orthodox stuff is in Greek and in Slavonic and uh, Arabic and Romanian, like it's in different languages and a lot more stuff is being translated into English now than it used to be, we have a, a lot more access to Protestant and Catholic stuff. Certain Protestant stuff I think is fine depending on what you are looking into, right? Especially the Bible, I would also, it, it really depends. Because you can, I can pick up some commentaries and I just want to throw it against the wall because it's just like a regurgitation of just things that the Orthodox Church has even said like, Anathema. Like, no, that's not how we read this, right? Uh, there is some Catholic commentary that I think is really great. It all depends, because some of them, it's just a little crazy. But also the past 200 years, because of academic study of the Bible, there's a lot of craziness out there. Yes? Yeah, um, to back up what you were saying about like, the difference between how we were raised, with exception of Facebook, I have no experience with it. Is I was in Adrian Rogers Church, and they I don't know who, Cal- that is. who not, is that? Bellevue uh, Baptist Church, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, for finding, I think, or the, the radio broadcast. Uh, yeah, I think his was a Living Waters Ministry or something like that. I have no idea. Well, he, um, he I'm more in the fourth a, century than I am in like 21st century. Oh, yeah, Go ahead. He, well, you know, we were Baptists, so he was not a Calvinist to the degree he was a Calvinist, which is a whole once saved, always saved thing, which mm-hmm. is like Baptist tied himself to. But when we were trained in Baptist understanding of the Bible, you know, the part of Thessalonians where Paul says you have to not just 
re, you know, adhere to what was written or what is said. You know, yeah. before I had no idea what that really meant, and I never drew a connection between that and justifying, you know, tradition and the church and everything. So what's funny is, you at some point you realize no matter what you're in a tradition. Mm-hmm. The Baptist tradition is a tradition. Uh, Pentecostal, it, it is a set of presuppositions. It is a set of how do we read things, and it has like how it all coheres, and this is what church is, and etc. Right? You just have to admit that. There's the, the, otherwise you have just mass chaos. Yeah, they always have to quote Spurgeon or you know good or bad, Which, whatever. Right, but you know. there you go. That's their authority. Mm-hmm. So that's their ideal. So. The question is, is that the right one? Is it a historical one? That's where you get to another place. But for a lot of folks, it takes a lot of... to get them to even admit that it is a tradition that they're following. Because they think they're just reading the Bible. Yeah. Nobody's just reading the Bible. Yeah. Even if you've not been shaped in a Christian tradition, even if you're coming to it, you're going to have a whole lot of presuppositions. Why would you read the Bible instead of the Quran? Because we live in the West, and there's a basic presupposition you're going to find truth in this bio, this book as opposed to these other ones right so that's good I'm not saying that's bad it's just here's the tradition right any other questions there's all we could, we could talk for hours and hours but I promise people we end now so Lord now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word from mine eyes I see in salvation which thou hast prepared before the pace of all people light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen.